Welcome back to That's a Good Word, a podcast designed to assist and equip Christians through advice from people in ministry. If you're blessed by our content, we'd appreciate if you liked and subscribed to our YouTube channel, and feel free to follow us over social media content as well. We are honored today to have on Dr. Donnie Mathis from North Greenville University. I had Dr. Mathis um, for Greek for five semesters, so we know each other well. Of course, if I ever interpret anything in the New Testament wrong, it's his fault, so we can blame it completely on him, right? That's right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Dr. Mathis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. So we start every episode, just let you tell, your, tell us your story, your testimony, um, and sure, get right into that. So I had the, the, the blessing of growing up as a pastor's kid, kind of like you. Right. Uh, and so, uh, from, from very early on, obviously I've, I've always been in church and, uh, and I had the blessing of, of having a very good experience as a pastor's kid. I know that's not the case for everybody. Um, but I, all I ever knew was, were, uh, churches that, that cared for our family really well. And it loved us well. Uh, so there wasn't any kind of, um, there weren't any kind of barriers that, that, that sometimes folks that are pastor's kids, uh, that they have as it relates to church and, and particularly how that can get in the way of hearing the message about Jesus. So when I was, uh, man, I, let's see, seven years old, I guess, or uh, yeah, almost eight. Uh, the Lord had been working in my in my life for a while. Uh, there are stories that, like, my parents tell uh, of things that I would ask uh, at a young age. Even apparently, I was a pretty precocious young child, and and one Sunday, apparently, I don't remember this, so it may not even be true. Uh, my mom was in the choir, sat in the choir, and I was sitting with the the lady who was my was my babysitter um, and uh, kind of an adoptive parent or grandparent. She probably would have been offended if I was a grandparent at that age. And and I wanted to go forward and make a decision. And she told me that I couldn't do that. Uh, and I apparently began to question whether or not she was converted or, or not. Like, are you really a Christian and you're not going to let me do this? And so... Uh, at, at seven years of age, um, I think it was March, in, in March of 1979, very old, um, the Lord used a message that my dad preached to really sort of bring some things to bear uh, in, a, in a new way or uh, a more significant way. And after the service was over, um, my dad and I went to his office there at the church and I prayed to receive Christ. And um, so uh, at a, and I was baptized on April Fool's Day, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, and I don't know that there was ever really, maybe there were a couple of few times in my growing up years where there were questions or doubts that, you know, was I really saved? But I didn't really, even in times of, uh, semi-rebellion or whatever you want to call it through teenage years, uh, I don't know that I ever like seriously doubted uh, my salvation or anything like that. And, and a lot of that goes back to having, you know, parents that would love the Lord and loved me 
and, and my sister as well. And 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 then being in churches where I was was taught well and cared for, and and I knew that I was loved even when I was kind of unlovable. Um, uh, you know, because I was pretty hyper and thought I knew a lot, or you know, and so. That can be kind of difficult to deal with, <laughs> and uh, but they were always just really, really kind. I, I remember like teacher after teacher after teacher in in Sunday school and and you know discipleship training and and RAs that uh, that just care about us and and loved us well and you know and so went through the high school years. I I was fortunate uh, in that and in the you know my. My dad was a pastor, but we really didn't move around mm-hmm. much uh, during my growing up years. I would uh, really lived in two places until I was in college. Uh, and so, you know, the place that I went to from second grade through high school, I was in the same place, same town. And, um, and that was a real blessing. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, during my, I guess, after my senior year of high school, I was uh, plan. I was planning to go to the University of Kentucky, uh, and ended up going to UK. And I was uh, I, I was pretty good at math and science, and uh, at the time was very adamant that I didn't want to be a preacher or anything like that. Um, and so I went to UK to be a mechanical engineer. One of the first places that I went on campus was to the Baptist Student Union. Because uh, UK at the time was 23,000 students, something like that. The town I grew up in was uh, not that big right. by any means. And so I wanted to find a place to fit in. Uh, didn't really want to be a part of the Greek scene or anything like that. I, you know, So I, I got involved there, made some amazing friends that really, um, really pushed me to 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 really consider what it is that, that God wanted to do with my life mm-hmm. that pushed me to growing in Christ, even like toward reading the Bible more regularly. That uh, during high school, that had not been a common thing. Like I repeated, you know, daily reading of the scriptures. And in fact, even like right before I went to college, uh, I went on a mission trip with our youth group and was teaching. Uh, I fifth and sixth grade kids in a vacation Bible school. So having to read the Bible, study the Bible, I began to wonder, like, when, when, when I would read the Bible, like, is God, like, calling me to ministry? I don't want that. Right. <laughs> so I just stopped reading the Bible. And so in my freshman year of college, I, uh, you know, began reading the Bible again, and the same sort of thing happened. Uh, and, you know, I even had... You know, I had my dad come up from from where I grew up to Lexington to, you know, is this what's going on? Like, is this what I'm supposed to do? I don't know. And then I would just stop reading the Bible and it would go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, my sophomore year at the Baptist Union State Convention, um, I, for some reason, I ended up not sitting with my friends. I was by myself. So maybe I was a little more focused on what was being said. Uh, I don't honestly remember much of what was being said, but, but in the midst of the, the service, um, it, it became, the Lord was working through his spirit on me. And, and it just became really clear that, that the, the happiness that I wanted, 
uh, the settledness about where I was going, what I was going to do, that I was hoping for, it just became really clear that until I submitted to what it is God wanted me to do, uh, the calling that he was putting on my life, and I wasn't going to have it. Mm. Like I was doing really well at school. Uh, I was excelling in the classroom. But I just, that I knew that there was something more. Um, I didn't really want it to be be a pastor uh, because I, you know, I had a really good picture of what that is. Like, you know, um, and I even grew up in a really great situations with great churches that loved me. It's just, it's up. It is, it is a challenge. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's a life filled with a lot of really, uh, a lot of really great highs and lots of pain. Um, you know, I even saw a a clip of somebody talking just a few weeks ago about how, you know, uh, most folks, and and it could have been a totally made up, but it made a lot of sense to me. Like most folks lose like seven serious, deep relationships in a lifetime and that, that pastors oftentimes lose that many in a year Mm. and 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 how that can take a toll on you emotionally and spiritually and and um and honestly it may not even been true but it really did resonate uh with me what the guy was saying and so um so i surrendered to that call to ministry i uh, ended up finishing my degree in mechanical engineering at uk and then from there went directly on to to the southern baptist theological seminary and when i went there uh, this would have been in the fall of 1994. Uh, I went there with every intention of, of getting a Master of Divinity and going and being a pastor. I thought that's what God had called me to do. Uh, I had gotten the opportunity to preach a lot uh, over those two or three years while I was in UK and, and did summer missions every summer after, uh, you know, while I was in college. And I went there with the intention of being a pastor. And in my first uh, semester, I took uh, elementary Greek and, and and other classes too. Elementary Greek and New Testament Survey One. It's on the Gospels. And when I got in the Greek class, I I loved it. I I loved the uh, the. Uh, I love learning how the language worked. I love learning uh, at a very elementary stage, obviously, like it was drinking from a fire, as you know what that's like. Yeah. And, um, but I loved it. And I had a New Testament professor who, um, <laughs> who picked me out of the crown. Uh, you know, I, I studied really hard. I always had a pretty good, uh, work ethic with school and done well. And, and he, uh, I don't remember which test it was, but he wrote on one of my tests, uh, in that first semester, uh, maybe it was the fall exam that, uh, that, that it, that I needed to follow in the footsteps of A.T. Roberts, who's the greatest Southern Baptist scholar, uh, probably ever. Uh, and certainly the greatest Greek uh, grammarian, maybe the greatest Greek grammarian in the United States history. Like he wrote a 1,000-page uh, Greek grammar in the 1920s. 
Um, and, uh, and so I was hooked. Like he may have written that on every, everybody's example, but I believed in what he wrote it on mine and he took me under his wing. Uh, we had very different views on, on basically everything theologically. Um, and so I took every class I could take with him, uh, because he, uh, loved me, saw something in me and, um, and just wanted to see me pursue that. And so uh, I finished my MDiv in three years, went into the PhD program at Southern in New Testament. He was my doctoral dissertation supervisor. And then after about two, uh, two years of study, he had, uh, had dementia. And uh, I ended up um, not finishing with him. He had to retire pretty quickly. And so I ended up finishing my doctoral dissertation uh, on the letter to the Galatians on the place of uh, the title of it is Abraham and the exile in Galatians 3, 1 to 14. And I got to do that with Tom Schreiner, who's an amazing yeah. uh, New Testament scholar, Pauline scholar, and an even more godly and gracious man than he is a great scholar. And, uh, and so I graduated and... Uh, in 2004 in December and uh, was looking for a teaching position. I had gotten engaged uh, right before Memorial Day uh, in 2005. And I got a call like the following Monday. I didn't have a job. I got engaged, which was really not the wisest thing, but I knew that was the right thing to do, the, you know? And um, and thankfully my wife's dad said it was okay as long as I got a job. And uh, the following Monday, I got a call, Monday or Tuesday, I got a call from Dr. Walter Johnson at North Greenwood University about coming and being a professor there, teaching New Testament. And I've been there ever since. Wow. It's awesome. How long have you been at North Greenwood? So this is this my 19th year at NGU. I've lived in Greenville County uh, longer than I lived anywhere in my life, mm -hmm. which is a pretty amazing thing since I am a Kentuckian to my core. Right. But I've lived in Greenville County longer than anywhere I've ever lived. Right. Awesome. A lot of um, a lot of people I talk to that have been in the faith for a while, they they say that one of the greatest assurances of their faith is to look back. You know, on oh the yeah, yeah. Imagine that. You know, you start out, you've been through many different roles, and you probably thought many different career, thought of many different career paths. You probably oh, yeah, see God yeah. working through all of that. I imagine. Oh yeah, like even you know the the one of the things that like in in seminary, at you know I had no background in. Uh, aside from what I had learned in church, uh, for for anything, and and I had grown up in really you know good solid churches. My dad preached through books of the Bible. There was so much I didn't know, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and didn't know that I didn't know. And the 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 work ethic, the the willingness to to work day after day after day after day, mm -hmm. um, what? was something that that really served me well. Like, you know, honestly, being an engineering major can be really frustrating. There are times when you can work, you know, hours on one problem. Right. And, uh, you know, just like a regular homework problem, three or four or five hours. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and it can be really frustrating trying to figure it out. But, um, but that developed a, a work ethic and, and a stick to that worked really well. And, and honestly, I think that that, 
you know, things building upon one another day after day after day, like you would have in a math class or an engineering class, um, it, it was really helpful, like in learning degree, because it's not something that you can just, you know, just sort of do intermittently and then cram for an exam. Right. Right. You've got to do it every day. And that, that really prepared me well for where God was going to take me, even though I would have never thought that. Mm-hmm. No, a lot of the people you prepare now are, are going into a ministry position. Yeah, yeah. going into the pastoral position. Um, understanding the original language is you know, important. Yeah, uh, is extremely important. Uh, I remember we were in class. You had an analogy um, that I thought was uh, was very good. It was that um, you know, reading the Bible in English, you could still understand, obviously, absolutely, text, absolutely. But, uh, it's sort of like kissing the bride with rebel on something like that i think the, well, I, I don't remember saying that it was something along those lines but, i believe that um but okay. there's the i mean imagine there are the goal you know in study and teaching that for students that are going to be maybe in a, they might go into education but a lot of them are going to be pastors or missionaries right. the goal is to say when you look at the bible and I'm, I'm showing you these things in the original language you want the bible to kind of explode for them and just just to see right. things they've never seen that's before right. is, you know that's right and and it's not like I, I would I would say that very few of my students, if any, are ever going to reach the point of knowing as much or more than the folks that are on these translation committees mm-hmm. that that we have for the English translations in the New Testament. There, the translations that we have today are are amazing. They're right. they're great, but there is there is always that limitation, mm-hmm. and and so. It's not that you know that, that I think my students are going to know more than these folks, but being able to look at it and to to compare what you're looking at, what you're seeing in the original language with what they're giving you in these different translations is a really great benefit. Uh, you can uh, where you can well, for instance, like translating a particular sense of what's trying to be conveyed in a, in a verb that that's chosen. It, the authors or the translators, interpreters, and because every translation is an interpretation, uh, they can't be as literal in conveying the whole sense maybe of what the authors may be conveying because if they did, the, we wouldn't be able to carry our Bibles around right. because it would take too many words to to get across the idea because the languages are not like they don't have one-to-one correspondence right uh verb systems work differently they you know convey a different ideas and so it's just helpful to be able to look at it to think about it and to to ponder um uh ponder it a bit more deeply uh i don't want to sound like it's a magic trick or something like that because it's not that at all and certainly people can understand the Bible in English, you know, what what God willed to convey through the authors in English. They can understand that well right. Right. And, and don't need to doubt the translations they have. It just gives a, a depth and a richness and a fullness. And and the other thing with my students that are going into ministry, they, they're not probably going to have the time to keep up their vocabulary skills right. or uh, to remember all of the endings that they have to memorize when they're in Greek one and two, but they're developing the skills 
so that when they go to a commentary that that deals in the original languages in a in a in a significant way, they can they can study it and they can understand what's yeah. being said. They can they can test what's being said so that when they have you know different commentaries that are saying you know different things in a couple of areas and and they have a little bit of skill that they can draw up on to try to work through and figure out which is the best so that they can best articulate to the people that they're trying to teach mm -hmm. what it is that that God through the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit inspire the biblical authors to write to a group of people that needed to hear that message. And the fact of the matter is that there are people in churches that still need to hear that same message. Right. And and so to be able to understand it, to articulate it, and to have all the tools that they need in their tool belt to do it is it's just a great gift to be able to to look at the scriptures uh, in their original language and um, and I love being able to give my life to that. Yeah, definitely, definitely, awesome. And have students like you. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, I, I learned a whole lot. Uh, I can I, I can say that. Uh, without reservation, I, I learned a lot, and it's kind of like the uh, the you know the the deeper you get, the thirstier you get, you know, kind of thing. Absolutely, the further you absolutely get, the further you get in the scriptures, the more you want to know. Absolutely. Um, certainly, I would I would you know people that are there's p certain people that you know in their salvation experience it's simple, you know, it wasn't right. Very, but I think for every Christian, there there should be that desire to go deeper. Everyone's going to go to different lengths. Um, right, right, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, when I tell people, like, I mean, the reason I, I don't think that, you know, I think sometimes that in churches we get this this wrong idea that the Bible's boring, and that's just not. Yeah, I mean, I think. Yeah. Every time I study the Bible, it's exciting. There, there, I learn something new every yeah. day, and and especially when you understand the gospel as holistically, this whole picture of Genesis to Revelation, this whole storyline, yeah, and you start connecting dots. Absolutely, that really helps in a big way. Absolutely, and you know. Uh, when people say that the Bible is boring, I wonder if they really ever actually read the Bible. Mm -hmm. And and I think that you're what you said there about having the the understanding the big picture yeah. of the whole of the story is really really essential because one of the things that happens a lot of the times in the way that that we study the Bible and the way that we're taught the Bible uh, in church, or at least the way you know uh, I was growing up is it's real easy to get focused in on one paragraph of a mm -hmm. letter of Paul or one story or two or three or four stories from the life of Jesus or two or three or four stories from uh, you know judges or kings and and you and and oftentimes they leave out the more uh, interesting stories yeah the more you know PG13 stories uh, and for good reason for seven girls, right? But um, but we don't see how it's all connected, and we kind of can miss the forest for the tree. Mm -hmm. But when we begin to see, particularly folks that like to read fiction, even though the Bible obviously happened, um, that that there are lots of folks that I've met over the years that really like to read fiction, like to read nonfiction, love to read, but then when it comes to looking at the scriptures, they they freak out. Like yeah. either either they think that that studying the Bible is a, is a magic trick, or that they're not smart enough, or that they just don't know that. Like all kinds of of sort of hurdles that people put in their way 
when when really reading the Bible uh, is is a lot like reading any other book. Right. It's more important. Uh, it certainly is true right. in everything that it claims. Yes, yeah. but but for whatever reason, the skills that folks used to read in their everyday lives, they don't think that they translate to reading the Bible, and they really do. Mm-hmm. And so, part of it, I think, is we get too focused on one story and don't see the big picture. Because if if there's a if there's a story that doesn't make sense in one of the narratives. And there are plenty of them that are like, why is this in the Bible? This is weird or right, strange right. or, you know, uh, or a genealogy or something like that. Like, why is this here? But if we can see it on that that bigger scale of, of creation and then the fall and then the story of frustration in the Old Testament, like God is, has called Abraham and his family to be the ones through who you know, God's blessing, and ultimately I think that's the blessing of his presence, that his blessing is going to come to all the families of the earth. Well, if you can then look at the story of Israel and recognize the story of Israel is the story of the outworking of this promise. Yeah. So that when when they go into the promised land and God chooses to place his name at a place and there's, a bit, you know, eventually they build the, the temple— this is where God's dwelling in the midst of his people. Uh, he's reigning and ruling uh, in heaven. And this, this temple is the intersection of heaven and earth. And, and, and so these people in this place are to be the ones through whom this, the blessing of this God goes to all the peoples around them. And then you see that, well, actually, they're not worshiping this God. Mm. They're worshiping the other God. Yeah. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense to this, and why this is a problem, and and the foreshadowing that you see in in um, in fictional literature, you begin to see in this historical narrative that's telling a, a real story about real people that lived and died and and had uh, families that you can see. Oh, well, Israel's given themselves a king. Like mm. in our church, we're we're we, all this year. We've gone through First Samuel and Second Samuel, and and now we're into First Kings. And man, there's some bits of interesting Sundays. So like, I don't know how he's a preacher. This is the narrative. But when you see it on this bigger scale, you can say, oh, like in Judges, the very end, it says there was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And now at the beginning of, you know, First Samuel, and they 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 said we need, we need a king, right. What they're saying is, well, God's like good enough. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we want a king like the other, like the other nations. Well, that 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 all like set off sirens in our ears. Yeah, this is not going to really work good at all. Shows you how scary it is for one to lose one generation. That's right. That's I mean, I, I think like yeah, as First Samuel one. I mean, the uh, you have Eli, right? The, and, and, and the bl- and, and what his blindness is trying to convey. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Right. And he can't even he can't even recognize what you know this person's down there praying, right? And he does it. Yes. Not even recognizable. That's the, exactly right. You know, You're exactly in a way. Um and so once you get that sort of bigger picture, like, okay, so there's this there's this bigger story, this bigger purpose for Israel, and now they they want to be like the other nations. Well, that's the very thing that that Moses warned them about in Deuteronomy. Like Deuteronomy is just, you know, 
30-some chapters of, of warning about you're going to get in this land and you're going to get fat and happy. Yeah. Don't do that because when you get fat and happy, you're going to worship other gods and that's going to leave you getting booted out just like the nations you're going to run out. And so you get this story of the Old Testament and then, you know, in Israel, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom is destroyed by the Babylonians. And, but we still have this promise. And so when you, then you go to like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets, and those are weird. Yeah. Like weird, like there's weird imagery. And, and, but that's because it's written in prophetic language that can sometimes be figurative. And you, and that's where, you know, like when you're interpreting the Bible, you gotta, you gotta ask yourself, like, what, what's the, the genre that I'm, that I'm dealing with? What's, the, what's that word? Genre. That's a scary word. Like, what is it? That's some, you know, North Greenville or for some college word or whatever, but, but you deal with that every day. Like if you're listening to a song on the radio, that's a poem. And you're going to listen to what somebody says about how they, uh, how they love their wife or girlfriend or how they hate their job or whatever. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to interpret that song mm -hmm. through that lens. And you're going to, you know, when he says something ridiculous over the top, you're going to say, well, that's because it's in a song. Mm -hmm. You can say that because it's in a song. Well, they're, there are songs in the Bible and they use figurative language. There, there's poetry in the prophets and they use figurative language that is, if we read it literally, it's just going to be like, what is he talking about? Right. Right. You know? And, and so, but then when we see that, like, okay, he's using figurative language to convey a very real thing. Mm -hmm. Then, okay. Okay. This makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we can begin to, to, to make progress because we've got this bigger story that gives backdrop to everything. Mm -hmm. And now we know, well, when I'm reading in First Samuel, that's really literal most of the time because it's describing what happens and the author has a purpose behind it. Yet every story has a purpose that fits into the larger whole. And then... And, and a lot of times they're going to give us at the beginning or the end of the book kind of the clue into how to look at every one of those stories. Right. And then we get to like, uh, to I mean, there's a reason why God in his providence has Matthew as the first uh, book in the New Testament and starts with a genealogy that, that probably uh, you and I and most everybody that's watching this has probably jumped over. Like, let's get to the real stuff. Right. But that genealogy is framing us yeah. in this whole story of the Old Testament, and it's saying there's something big that's about to happen. Because, mm -hmm. you know, God, you know, at the very, very beginning, Matthew uh, starts with son of David, son of Abraham, which is a, out of order, you know, chronologically. But there's an emphasis in choosing David first. Because David is the king of Israel. He's the king after God's own heart. He's the the high watermark of kingship, which is also kind of troubling because he's the second one. And, and it goes pretty much downhill from there, even though Solomon, you know, starts out really great, ask God for wisdom and then ends up in a lot of disaster, yeah. you know, but um, this is the true king, mm -hmm. the king that God promised to David back in second Samuel said, this is the true Israelite, the one that, you know, the one that actually is going to get it right, you know, because the whole story of the Old Testament is Israel is just as messed up. Abraham's children 
are just as messed up as everybody else. Mm. But this is the true son of Abraham who's going to, to complete this promise. So that's why I like when I get to Galatians 3 and it talks about, you know, that Abraham believed God and it's credited him as righteousness. That, that Paul is telling the Galatians who are Gentiles that are being enticed to, to go back to Judaism, that, that from the beginning, before the law was given, from the beginning of the story, the way into God's family has been through faith in the promise of God. Abraham was had faith in a promise that he was never going to see, and that's why God credited it to him as righteousness. He declared it right before him because he believed in God's promise, and the benefit that the Galatians had is they don't have to look for something to happen in the future. God's already done it in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right. That it's not faith in the promise not completed. What he's saying is you need to have faith in the promise that was completed mm. in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You need to have faith like Abraham. Yeah. And it's always been about faith. It's never been about earning or keeping the law. You know, the, the law in the Old Testament was never the means by which anybody entered into God's people. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in Exodus 4, Israel is called God's son. He's adopted them as his children before he ever gets to Sinai, before the Ephraim ever happens. And so Paul in Galatians is just giving them a proper perspective on the whole story to say being a part of God's people has always been about faith, mm-hmm. a faith that transforms, but it's been about faith. Faith. So picking up the law as the governing uh, document of life, and and uh, and and thinking that it's going to be a means of getting to the end of the road is is just out of bounds. Because now the, the spirit that was promised on the other side of the exile has been given. The spirit dwells in you, so now you walk by the spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Right now, we all feel like rules are easier because we can like they're in print. Yeah, but but what he's getting at is the the way to obey the things that are in print is by walking in the power of the Spirit who empowers you. Uh, transform the way it's described in Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah thirty one and Ezekiel thirty six is. You know, that, that he's going to circumcise your heart is the way it's in Deuteronomy. He's going to write the law in your heart in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. He's going to replace your hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Well, what Paul's saying is that's what's been done when you were converted. Right. You don't have a new heart. Right. You have a spirit that is empowering you for obedience. Mm-hmm. And so um, when we see all of how all of it fits together, then those individual parts start to make more sense. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think you've highlighted a very important point uh, is so much of understanding the New Testament and the storyline is, um, and just Paul's letters, is the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Yes. Which is why it's frustrating sometimes to hear people say that we don't need the Old Testament, you know, certain. Right, right, right. Sure. It, can, yeah. it can be frustrating to say that. And uh, there's a couple of questions I was going to ask about Galatians here in a second, but first before we get to that, um, how, you know, I mean, it's almost like 
I would definitely make the contention that you can understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And at the very least, you're missing out a whole lot. You're missing out a whole lot. Yeah, you you are. You're you. I, I want to be careful to to say, particularly at a, at a starting point, mm. at at um, at conversion, um, if you've never been around the scriptures, like there certainly is a a level of understanding, a an ability to understand. That if you had one book of the scripture, right, definitely, that, that you could know God, you could be uh, called from death to life. Yes, and I don't want it to ever seem like that. That to be a faithful, godly, holy Christian, that you have to have a PhD or a college degree, right, or or anything like that. Like you know, my 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 grandfather. My mother's dad, um, I, I don't know that he had much more than a sixth grade education. And he was a pastor and he was a faithful, godly pastor. And at the end of the day, um, the work of God in someone is way more important than their education. Certainly. Yeah. Sure. But at the same time, when we have the opportunity to learn and to use uh, various tools to to sharpen our uh, tools, our own tools, for reading and understanding the Bible, it would be foolish of us not to take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. You know, if uh, you can look at me and tell that I'm not really outdoorsy or uh, have worked very uh, hard outside, but, uh, you know, I I can't imagine why somebody who was, you know, who who chopped down trees would just... It always just just demand that I'm going to use an axe when you could very easily use uh, a chainsaw. Right. You know, like like th- there is there is uh, when there are opportunities, and that's the great thing about uh, where we are today. There are tons and tons of really great resources that you can find online. There's also some really terrible ones too. Mm-hmm. But 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 when you you know talk with your pastor, talk with people that you respect who who study the scriptures and know the scriptures, they're gonna point you to really good resources that you can get for free and and will help you sharpen those tools and have more tools in your tool belt. Uh, because that's another thing like there, you know, I have friends that that do woodworking and things like that that just seem impossible to me, uh, like with the the few tools that I have. But then, but then you like sit and watch them, and you realize, well, what he just did, it takes know-how, mm-hmm. but it's way easier because he has a tool that is particularly made to do that one thing, and it does it the right way at the right angle, in the right direction. Like it, it has all of these various bells and whistles that allow them to do this thing uh, with great uh, precision. And so with those resources, with those opportunities, we, we can need to take advantage of them uh, and use them as, as best we can. Uh, I feel like I kind of ordered off from road. Oh, no, you're from it. You're good. Um this kind, of, this kind of ties in with understanding, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. Um, 
people go to Paul's letters. I know, I know this is a, this is a question for many people. And we talk about, you know, Galatians 3, the beginning of that. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, St. Ramos saved by faith. And so the natural question that Paul goes on to answer yeah. is why the law, you know, in this life's right, happening because right. transgressions, people disagree on what that means. They discuss sure. it. Um, but I think a lot of people might have the question is what does the Old Testament law have for us today? You know, you know, as New Testament Christians, you know, we have the New Testament and we understand that, you know, a lot of the laws we read in the Old Testament sound really odd. And it's like, you know, we're not Jewish people. We this this cut and we read stuff and it's like, I don't I don't know if I can do that. You know what I mean? So yeah, absolutely. A lot of people might understand, might question why you know how we should look at the law today and its bearing on us. I guess. Sure. So that's a really great question. And, and you know, as we think about Paul, I think it is also very important to just remember uh, that that even Peter in Second Peter said Paul writes a lot of things that are hard to understand. Mm -hmm. So if one of the apostles who walked with Jesus writes in a letter to a church. Yeah, Paul's tough to understand. Uh, we should take some comfort in that. Right. And now, but along with that, the other thing also that he says is pretty amazing. Very early on uh, in the, the life of the church, he said, but he also says, which uh, ungodly people, uh, and I'm paraphrasing this, twist to their, essentially to their demise, mm -hmm. like they do the rest of the scriptures. So, like, when we read scriptures, the word scriptures in the New Testament, and it's talking about the Old Testament. But, like, here, like, maybe 35, 36 years after the death of Jesus, uh, Peter is saying already, like, this is, this is scripture. This is on a, on a level with, on a, the same authority as what we have in the Old Testament scriptures. Right. It's a pretty profound thing. Right. So... The law. Well, first of all, I think it's important to get, and we've talked talked about this a little bit already, uh, a perspective on what the law was intended to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Because we have this difficulty that arises uh, in in Exodus. So yeah, they're they're brought out of Egypt. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, God shows that He is more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians. Mm. And it's a pretty, you know, like this is where, like, having the resources to understand about, like, what were the Egyptian gods? What did they, what did they think about these gods? What did their gods look like? Like, they have these manifestations of, which is significant because they have all of these various uh, pictures and odd sort of hybrid creatures that are really strange yeah. that they thought were their gods and they made images of them and they bowed down before them. But yet the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you don't make images of him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like the most powerful God in the, in the Egyptian pantheon was the God of the sun. So when God makes it dark, that's showing that he's got power over the most powerful God that they had ever conceived on. Yeah. But yet the Pharaoh still doesn't let him get, let them go. Wow. Yeah. And so they go out and, you know, you have the golden calf episode, you got all of these things that are going on there. And there's this reality of God's not going to go with them because they're unholy and he's holy. And that holiness is, is, a, is, is enacted in his power and, 
And when the unholy comes into the presence of the holy, the holy destroys it. It can't be there. And so God's like, I'm not going to go because you're. I'll destroy these people along the way. And so you had the Ten Commandments given, and, and the law is going to be further fleshed out. But the purpose of that is uh, so that an unholy people can live close to holy God, yes. and that they can they can have a life of blessedness under the kingship of God. But it's always at a distance. You know, like when Moses asks, can I, you know, I want to see your glory. And God says, no one can see uh, my face and live. And, uh, but he protects them and sees the back of it. Well, so like when we get to the gospel of John and John 1, 14, and says the word became flesh and pitched its ta- his tabernacle among us, like the tabernacle, right. you know, in the Old Testament where God would, uh, would, would come and, and meet with his people and, and, and now we see that he's come and pitched his tent and we beheld his glory. The glory is the Lord only from the Father, full of grace and truth. So like the, the, the glory of God that can't be seen, can't be approached. And even if you go into the Holy of Holies that one time a year, you know, filled with smoke before you go in so that you, will, you, you, know, you won't encounter that glory too close. Like there's always these barriers and these... Uh, provisions so that you won't be considered like in Isaiah, he, even though it's in a vision, he's like, I'm dead. This is it a vision? He's in the throne of God. And, and even there, the train of the robe fills the temple. So like, it's not even clear if he can actually see fully the, the throne. And he's like, well, I'm dead. I shouldn't be alive because I'm in the throne of God. Right. It's glorious God. And now in John, he says that the glory of God has now been, has been, it's tabernacled in the midst of us and not at a distance. And, you know, like in the classic thing that happens when, when Jesus breathes his last uh, on the cross and the veil is ripped from top to bottom, like there's the, the symbolic of the access that he's providing into the presence of God because he's died in the place of sinners. Mm-hmm. So like, so, and, and, and that is in the all the way around to this. And in fact, I was actually reading, uh, uh, working on a commentary on Romans, I actually sent in the for the final edit last night. I was doing some final work and reading in, in Tom Schreiner's commentary on Romans, and and he was talking about how how in the the death of Jesus, the the, the sacrificial system, and the writer of Hebrews says this as well, right. over and over again, that the the that the need for sacrifice, because the sacrifice was a was a provision of the law to let unholy people into the like a little closer to the presence of God. Mm-hmm. You sacrifice for, but but even if you think about it, unintended sins. How many of our sins are accidental? Right. And there is no sacrifice of the law for idolatry, and wasn't that kind of the biggest deal that Israel had? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you've had a, a perfect sacrifice, like the writer of Hebrews talks about, one time dies for sin, and and makes any other need for sacrifice redundant. Mm. It's passe. Yeah. Because the sacrifice has been made by Jesus, and 
it's it's in Romans in Romans three, you know, where God can be just, He's He's dealing with sin, He condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus. And so God is just in the way that he deals with sin, but he's also the one who can declare righteous, he can justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Because not only did Jesus take away God's rightful wrath against sin, the the punishment on sin that is carried away in the death of Jesus, and he rose from the dead, conquering our two greatest enemies, sin and death, in one fatal swoop, he conquers it and is resurrected in glory. That's why we have Romans 8. He says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life to set you free in Christ Jesus for the law of sin and death. Like there is victory and that happens because Jesus has been raised and he gives his spirit and the spirit intercedes. And now we get to the end of it, uh, end of chapter eight, like there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And it all, it, it all happens because in the death of Jesus, the sacrificial system had been pointing in this direction. Like, they're, like uh, maybe they didn't necessarily recognize it, but in God, God in his providence is, and this is the way the writer of Hebrews is describing it, is it like the blood of lambs and bulls and goats is not going to accomplish anything lasting. But when the perfect lamb dies, he dies once for all. The wrath of God against sin is removed. Victory over death is provided in the resurrection of Jesus so that those who believe in him, what's true, you know, the, this in Christ language that you see in, in Romans 6 and and you see it in Ephesians and Colossians that 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 what is true of Jesus in First Corinthians fifteen about the resurrection, right. what's true of Jesus is going to be true of of those who belong to Him, who are in Him. So that's why you have the like in Romans five, the in Adam in Christ. Those are the two groups of people in the world. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you're under God's wrath. If you're in Christ, the the sacrifice for your sin has been made. Uh, you are. Uh, you have been declared right before God. You have the righteousness of Jesus and the guarantee of the resurrection. And so, um, so like, as it relates to the law, in the death of Jesus, the all of the sacrificial system becomes redundant. Mm-hmm. It becomes unnecessary. The question that they're dealing with a lot in the, in the New Testament, in Paul's letters in particular, is what's the place of the food laws in circumcision? Yeah. yeah. So like in, in Galatians, you've got a people who have, have started down this journey of faith through faith in Jesus alone. So like Galatians 3, 1 to 5, where Paul talks about, you know, it's, it's a cl- kind of a classic preacher thing, I think. I want to ask you one question, and he asks like five. <laughs> yes, yeah, the famous last words, like yeah. this is my last point, kind of thing. And so he's up, you know. And how did you start this journey? How did you start down this road? Was it by the works of the law or hearing with faith, hearing and belief? You can translate it in a number of different ways, mm-hmm. and certainly folks have. But the obvious answer is, well, you heard the message about Jesus, you believed in Jesus, and that's how you started down this journey. 
And he's shocked that you've started down this journey. You received the spirit, which is like in the book of Acts and really all throughout the, the New Testament for Acts to Revelation, like having the spirit means you're a Christian. You've got the spirit. I know that. I was there where it happened. Right. Why do you think that you're going to get to the end of the journey on the last day when you stand before God in a way that's different than the way you started the journey? And he's saying you're not. But their 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 whole little concern is what? How are you going to live now? Because, you know, like we were saying a minute ago, he says there in Galatians, uh, it will walk by the Spirit, you will gratify the desires of flesh. And that's a that's really kind of open-ended, right? Right. And and how do we know? Well, the spirit, if you're you know, if you're walking in the spirit, the spirit's gonna tell you, this is sinful, this is sinful, don't do it. Mm-hmm. The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like if that fruit is displayed in our lives, it, by virtue of displaying that fruit, we're not gonna break the law. Right. And so, so like the the food laws, you, know, you have like in Mark 7, uh, Mark makes an aside. It's one of my favorite passages in the gospel. And it's a little aside that Mark made. It was, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. So now we can have cheeseburgers. We can have shrimp and all those you know, foods that are really mm-hmm. great yeah. uh, because he's declaring those clean. And then you get like to Acts 10 and you have this whole interesting story of Peter and and having the vision, I've never eaten anything unclean. And he and then he goes to Cornelius's house, and he's beginning to understand. Well, this is not ultimately about food; it's about people. God's declaring the Gentiles clean, and just like God's declaring the Gentiles clean, Gentiles who believe in Cornelius right. is also declaring these food laws as unnecessary any longer mm-hmm. because because of this bigger picture and this completion of the story and, and this uniting of one people, this one people of God who are defined by their belief and faith in Jesus. And so this brings them together. And so uh, this establishment of the new covenant, uh, like Jesus talks about in the gospels, uh, in his death, that there's a new covenant that's established in his blood. And so with this establishment of this new covenant, which has a different sacrifice. This is a lot of what you get in Hebrews, different sacrifice than the sacrificial system. Under this new covenant, uh, you're not, you know, we need to be careful about how we sort of one-to-one circumcision and the the, the circumcision of the heart. I think it's important. Yeah. Like you even see in like in Deuteronomy, the, the language of circumcision, and Paul talks about this, is not the, the circumcision and that happens physically, that you can see physically, but it's a, a circumcision of the heart uh, that you are, uh, the one who is a Jew, this is in Romans, the one who is a Jew is the one who is a Jew at inwardly or secretly. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's talking about a part of God's people, not an ethnic Jew, but a part of God's people. And uh, so, so as a result of that, you have circumcision of the heart, which is, again, how do you know that? Because it's on the inside. Yeah. Well, it, it seems pretty clear that the in the prophets in the Old Testament, that's connected with the giving of the Spirit, like in Ezekiel, uh, when 
uh, in at Pentecost when they received the Spirit. You have the the one of the things that the, the immediate response and the people after Peter preaches is they were pierced. It's not the same word as circumcised, but they were pierced to the heart by what they heard about this message of Jesus. And and so and Paul's going to use this language of of circumcision of the heart. He's going to use this uh and he connects it to the receiving of the spirit. That the the sign, like in the book of Acts, that you are a part of this community, a part of the people of God, is the receiving of the spirit. So like in in Acts in particular, if you think about like the various stages of the growth of the church, uh when the Samaritans are converted under under the ministry of Philip in chapter 8, excuse me, there's real doubt among the Jews in Jerusalem. How are these people converted? Peter and John, why don't you go in there and check it out? Right. And we've got this really odd thing that they've been converted, but they haven't received the Spirit, which is uncommon. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, narratives tend to describe not necessarily to, to prescribe how things are going to happen. And so God in this providence does this differently because how can you know if somebody's got the Spirit? Like it's, you know, like you don't have this glow about you. Right. Like, like maybe, maybe you have some sort of like metaphorical glow about you, but like, not like you've been like in a nuclear test site or something. And so what happens? Peter and John go down there. They lay their hands on them, which is not necessarily, not necessary or common. Right. But they lay their hands on them. They receive the spirit and they, and that's demonstrated in the, uh, in their speaking in other languages, but Peter and John can see it. Mm-hmm. And so they go back to Jerusalem and say, yeah, God's accepted them. Somebody might have said, well, who'd have thought it? But, but it's happened. We can't dispute it. We can't doubt it. So, chapter 10. Cornelius. You know, Cornelius hey, calls for Peter. He goes. Peter's preaching. Doesn't even get to finish the sermon. Everybody in the house gets converted and they receive the Spirit in the middle of the sermon. And Peter, oh, they've been converted. Like, I mean, you know, uh, I, I do wonder if he was a little perturbed that they were, didn't let him finish the sermon or not, but, but, but like they're converted yeah. in the middle of the sermon. Yeah. And, and all of them are baptized. And he goes back. And what happens when he goes back in chapter 11? They complain. Like, what were you doing in the Gentiles' house? He had not get the food lost. Well, God's declared the Gentiles clean. Mm-hmm. And those food laws really served to separate and differentiate the Jews from the Gentiles. It was a way to demonstrate their separateness. A. And now that's been transcended. Mm-hmm. And so the Gentiles have been brought in. Would that have surprised them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we, in the end, have to get to Acts 15, and there's this conversation, like, are these Gentiles going to have to be circumcised? Are they going to have to keep the food laws? And they recognize that it, through their experience and the work that God had done, that God was saying, in this new era of salvation history, this new stage of the big story, it started in Genesis 1. In this new era, this is not necessary mm-hmm. because of what's been accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, 
when we get to like thinking about like what you might call the moral law of the Old Testament, that, I mean, in, in reality, walking in the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Those moral laws that are a part of the Old Testament, th those are going to be um, kept even more stringently in an odd way because you're not necessarily looking at them specifically. Right, sir. And it certainly is the case too, like with the, there are numerous laws from the Old Testament that Paul's going to bring up in his letters to talk about how people are to live together in community. Right. You know, love God, love your neighbor. Uh, you know, uh, don't commit adultery. Right. You know, those are those are Old Testament laws that that don't change. But if you walk in the Spirit, you're not going to break those, even if you didn't have them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, in a way, the I think you could say that the moral, ethical teachings of the Old Testament are still at work. But I think ultimately the reason for that is because of the character of of God. It doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Um, and he knows what's best for our, um, for our living in community and those, for that, those, uh, laws for living in community, those are not going to change. Right. So, um, maybe that answers the question. Yeah. We talked about the importance of understanding Paul's letters. I think one thing, you know, obviously making sure we understand that he's using the old Testament but also, I know you know speaking to speaking to specific audiences, and these are letters yeah. to people, yes. and oftentimes they're different audiences. Some people argue, you know, some letters are circular; they're doing a whole different bunch of churches. Some are just specifically to Gentiles. Right. right. Some maybe a base of Jews and Gentiles. Is that something just stressed people when they're reading the letters of Paul? This is an audience, Ab you know, absolutely, and that is super, super. Uh, beneficial, and you know, and maybe I wasn't listening when I was a kid, which is certainly possible. Um, I don't know that I ever really thought a lot uh, about, and really even up to going to seminary, honestly, thought a lot about um, what was going on in the circumstance of the the writing of the letter. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. I would read the Bible and then just try to apply it to my life and and try to come up with some you know theological truth that that really was not connected to anything that that uh, other than me mm -hmm. right which could have uh, could have been probably dangerous because I was maybe finding what I wanted to find mm. to to sort of get what I wanted to get yeah. uh, and and so in in learning about and it's one of the benefits like, uh, while I'm not a huge fan of study Bibles necessarily, because if we can depend on study notes too much, I mean, uh, when we're reading, I I am a big fan of the fact that most study Bibles tell you a little bit about the background of the book, right? Give you a bigger picture uh, view of the book, I'm like you know a thirty thousand foot view of the whole thing. That can be really helpful because you're right. Like Paul writes. Romans to a different group of people than he writes Galatians, and they're a different group of people that live in Corinth. And so, having 
those introductory materials at the beginning in a, of, a, of a letter in your study Bible or, or, or finding uh, good resources that you can find online or even purchasing uh, a Bible dictionary to tell you a little bit about the background uh, and circumstance can be really, really helpful for understanding stuff that Paul says because he's addressing the really specific problems. Now, that might seem at first like it's um, it's going to make things more difficult, but I think in the end it makes things, makes understanding what Paul's saying way easier uh, for this reason. Uh, or actually it'd be a couple reasons. But the the first one is, it I think it demystifies the the Bible a little bit because at times I think we get this idea that everything in the early church was just great. Mm, yeah. These are godly, holy people. They're so close to the time that Jesus lived and they had apostles around them. They how could they not be close to perfect? Right. And but if we take a step back, we would realize the only reason we have the letters that Paul wrote is that those folks are just as jacked up as we are. Yeah. Well, they they had the same kind of problem that we deal with today. Yeah. You know, one of the things that 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 um just really just the idea that somebody would say the Bible is irrelevant is is just crazy to me because you know, particularly when you read the letters of Paul, they're dealing with a society and a culture that is so much like the one we live in right now. Mm-hmm. So like in in First Corinthians, they're they're dealing with problems related to sexual immorality. And they've got a church filled with with people who've been converted out of a lifestyle of worshiping various idols and 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 in the worship of those idols, there were oftentimes sexual practices that were uh, indulged in as a part of the worship of those gods and goddesses. And and now they're being called out of that. They've been converted. And now they're being told that that the only proper sexual relationship is in a marriage between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. And they're really struggling with it. And some, you know, Paul has to correct some on one end of the spectrum that are saying, you know, we can do whatever we want sexually like we did before, and it's not going to harm our fellowship with God. And you've got other folks that are that are completely abstaining from sex, even in marriage. And he's trying to navigate helping these two groups of people be on good terms again. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you've got people that, that follow after, like in Corinth, you know, you've got people that are following after four different powerful leaders, at least they're claiming to, when the leaders want to have nothing to do with it. Like I'm following Peter or Cephas and I'm following Paul or Paulus. I'm following Christ. You know, like they're, they have problems just like we do. And the benefit to us is that their problems are addressed by Paul, by the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, so where they're thinking incorrectly we can learn how to think rightly. Where they're living uh, disobediently, we can learn from their mistakes as he corrects them. Right. But if we don't know 
a bit about the circumstance in which they live, understanding all, you know, as much as we can about what's going on in those problems becomes more difficult. But if we know that Corinth is a place where there's lots of trade, where there's people have come from all over the world, there's a different, lot of different ideas, mm -hmm. there are a lot of different cultures, there's all kinds of uh, opportunity for sexual misbehavior, then all that makes a lot more sense mm -hmm. why they're dealing with these problems. Or, um, you know, it, like like when we look at the book of Acts and we we find out about well, what's going on in Ephesus with you know the worship of Artemis and 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 you can maybe have a little bit of a background to sort of understand the things that are going on in the Ephesian letter or the yeah. influence that it might have had on Colossae or um, you know the ease like in Galatia that folks from uh, from uh, Jerusalem are claiming to be. Um, with the folks, the church in Jerusalem would come and cause trouble because they could just walk over land and mm -hmm. get there if they wanted to. Uh, like knowing those kinds of things are really helpful and, and to get, um, to just get the lay of the land. Because if you know the lay of the land, you can navigate the map of it a little bit uh, more simple. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, the, and then, you know, and it becomes more applicable. The more we know about what they're dealing with and how Paul is uh, conveying that, um, it can be, it becomes more applicable really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, Pat, I know we're running a little bit in time here. I know you got on, but uh, maybe try to get maybe one more, one more question kind of about, okay. about Paul's letters. Um, talk about, you know, understanding Paul, there is a lot of times where he's talking about different things like sanctification. Mm -hmm. Justification, glorification, like different things, um, yeah, different different parts of the Christian life. But um, you know, I think there's some it might be a misunderstanding. Like, well, what is he talking about in this specific instance? Is this something that's done in my salvation experience? Is it done in my Christian life? Is it done at the end? You know, I mean, uh, so we talk about those. Or all of those things as uh, with the same word, right? Exactly, exactly. So it's this conference. I know it's a big question. We can you know talk about just the those three different things, what they are. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Yes, we can. So the the, uh, the first thing is, like, these are, this is a great thing about studying the Bible, is that, that a person who's known Jesus for 10 minutes that knows enough to know Jesus mm -hmm. and is, is, justified they're declared right before god there's a declaration that what is true of jesus is true of you so like so with justification or being declared right this is a, a sort of a a conversation that happens with folks who that who know greek and they really in some ways they agree on like 90% of stuff and then they argue about 10% of stuff. Right. And some of it's really, really important. Some of it, not as much. Uh, and it's always fun, frankly, uh, to people like me, I guess. But uh, so justification is a legal declaration in the law court that when someone places his or her faith in Jesus and they believe that Jesus 
died for them, like Paul says in Romans 10. They confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and they believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead. They're going to be declared right by God immediately. They're justified. They are, they are declared right in the law court. Now, Paul also, in his letters, is going to talk about a future or final justification. So you're declared right in the law court on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone. You know, part of the Reformation. Right. Faith alone. You are declared right in the law court. Mm -hmm. On the last day, we will stand before the king, and that justification that is declared at the moment of salvation will be ultimately and finally enacted as you enter into God's kingdom right. for eternity right. in the new heaven and the new earth. So there is a there is a declaration that happens here that will be finally, ultimately accomplished on the last day. So uh, sanctification. Sanctification is uh, it, it is um, a, a, a term that uh, that we that we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and and there there is some debate about the nuance of exactly what that's getting at, sort of uh, uh, with the terminology. Theologically, there's maybe less debate, but the the term uh, like in Hebrew, there's it, it, it's either talking about being set apart or being consecrated, mm -hmm. uh, and this idea of like consecrated also conveys set apart, but it's it's this setting apart for a purpose that you're different and distinct, and that you are um, are set apart for the use of God, mm. like the instruments in the tabernacle in the temple. They're consecrating. They're set apart for the use of God. The priests would be consecrated, set apart for the use of of God, and so. Sanctification is, uh, the way that Paul describes it in the New Testament, is a, a process that, that begins when you're declared right by God and will continue on until the final justification mm. on the last day. And uh, it is the process, theologically, it would be described as the process of becoming more conformed to the image of Jesus. So like when, when Paul talks about um, uh, in Romans 12, therefore in view of the mercies of God, right. so think about like in light of what Paul's talked about in chapters 1 through 11 about what has been accomplished in justification, what God has done to show his mercy, to make them a part of his family, to declare them right in the law court, to fulfill his promises to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to set them free from the power of sin and death, to all of those things in view of all of those mercies of God, present your bodies 
Their whole selves is living sacrifices, which is strange, right? Because right. sacrifices are dead, but you're, you know, resurrected just like Jesus is, even now. We'll get to that in a second. And living sacrifices, holy, set apart, mm-hmm. consecrated, sanctified. Right. Which is your, and this is where the, you know, the translations will take it differently. Like the, the King James will say, uh, which is your reasonable service or something like that. Or other translations will say spiritual act of worship. It's it's really interesting that 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 there's such difficulty over the way to convey that in English, because the the word that's translated as spiritual in in many translations mm-hmm. is also talking about rationality in other circumstances. So, like you know, a lot of times we we separate spirituality and rationality. Yeah. But they're really in the the in Greek the this term is used in in circumstances where where the, the range of meaning covers both and they're not so um, posed right maybe as as we sometimes see them and then service and worship the like we oftentimes view worship as what we do when we get together on a Sunday morning or or even like the worship time when we sing, right. but but worship is our service mm-hmm. if it's done rightly. Right. So like when when I get up and and go to work, whatever job I have, if I'm doing that with an eye toward what I've received in Christ, I'm doing that as an act of worship and devotion to God. Mm-hmm. When I, you know, uh, if I I grill hamburgers with an eye toward serving my family and honor God in that, grilling hamburgers can be an act of worship. Right. And so, and then from there, so this is a reasonable service. So it's reasoned, it's thought out, doesn't divorce the spiritual not divorced from that, reasonable service. And then what do they do? They're to, they're to live with transformed minds. You know, so that we would know what is the good, pleasing, acceptable will of God, which well, God's real to the scriptures and that we live with transformed minds, then we're to think differently because we've been declared right mm-hmm. by God. We've had our hearts Hearts of stone replaced. We've been, uh, there was another word you didn't use, like regenerated, but born again. Born, you know, it's a really interesting play on words in John. Born again, born from above. It's, he's trying to sort of rattle their cages a little bit, I guess. Like we, we've we been regenerated. And that, uh, that begins this process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus, conformed to his image, thinking in transformed ways. And that's a process that that takes place over the course of life. Mm-hmm. In fact, I I you will appreciate this because you like to play golf. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the way we bonded, uh, you know, initially in class because you got to find ways to bond with great students so they don't run quit. <laughs> um, and I'll never forget 
I was in systematic theology class at Southern Seminary, and we were talking about this doctrine. And the professor went to college with Jerry Pate. Mm-hmm. Now, we're skewing old here, but he, I won at least one major, played golf at the University of Alabama, and he said that they, they went out playing golf, and Pate was known for his temper, I think, at least part of his career. And they were playing golf when they were in college. And he said, Pate hit it 250 yards to the right side of the fairway. And I hit it over by the trees. And I was really happy. And he was fuming <laughs> because he wanted the ball to be on the left side of the fairway so he would have an angle into the green. And he said, this is a picture of sanctification. I am a novice golfer. I hadn't played golf very long and, and, you know, and maybe not very athletic. The fact that he could find his golf ball was a win. Right. Because he's, he's been on this journey a really short period of time. But Pate was going to be a professional golfer. And he was trying to shoot in the 60s. He was trying to get better. And it wasn't that my professor wasn't trying to get better. He just hadn't done it as long. And so the, the thing that he was trying to convey is that the, the reality is all of us are on different journeys. And when we're at the beginning of the journey, we may spray it to the right or to the left, and we may fall in the ditch. We need people around us who've been traveling the journey longer than we have to, to you know, get us out and clean us up and help us to continue on the journey. And, and what he was getting at is, you know, pay that been on this journey longer. Well, there are lots of Christians that have been on the journey way longer than, than, than you or I have been uh, on that journey. And they're, they're more holy than we are, I think. Now, so when, when, when some sin comes into their lives, that we are further back on this journey, way earlier in the journey, look at that thing that they're, they're frustrated with and they're struggling with and they're praying that God would deliver them from, we're thinking, man, that's nothing. What, what in the world is he agonizing over that? Let this, let this beam come out of my eye, you know? Like, yeah. uh, like I'm the one that's got problems. You have problems. I got problems. Right. I need the Lord to fix these problems. And, and the point that he was trying to make is that the journey of sanctification is never finished until the day you die or Jesus comes back. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more you become like Jesus, the more apparent things that somebody who hadn't been on the journey as long or advanced along the road in the journey as much, they're like, what in the world is telling them? But the more we become like Jesus, the less satisfied we're going to be with where we are in the journey. And, and that is the process of sanctification. Because at the end of the day, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we realize we are not Jesus. Yeah. And, and that, um, that's why the journey's never ended. That's why studying the scriptures really should never get old. That's why... There's always something new to learn. Um, not that's different, but that deepens your understanding or puts two dots together or 
that you didn't see how they could be connected mm. uh, and you begin to see how things fit in ways that you didn't before or, or maybe weren't prepared to understand until you've gone down the journey a little bit more, until you've faced more suffering. That's a great teacher. You know, like Paul talks about that a lot in Romans 8. Like there's this glory in Romans 8, you know, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that ours that is ours in Christ Jesus. But he also has to talk about that he doesn't think that the sufferings of this present time are worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. And he talks about we are be, we are being slaughtered, but yet we're more than conquerors. Like the the, the journey of suffering uh, to glory is necessary. Mm-hmm. It's a part of that process of sanctification. So glorification is the realization of this um, new life that begins in regeneration. Glorification is when the, well, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, when the corruptible takes on incorruptibility, when uh, the, this body is transformed and, and is we receive a spiritual body. It's, it's, there's a physicality to it because Jesus' body and the resurrection had physicality to it, but it was different. wasn't uh, able to sin. I mean, Jesus certainly never sinned in what he did, thought, or said, but like when we receive it, we will no longer be able to sin. Uh, we will know Jesus as we are known by him. Um, glorification is when the resurrection life that we know in miniature, in slivers, in various victories along the way, becomes actualized and realized in its totality. 